hands lifted high, high in praise. We surrender to you, and it's you reaching. We adore singing to us, Lord.
in trial and protest in the weight of the night when brothers and sisters feel like enemies we're clinging to jesus holding on for dear life There's a way that is higher than ours. There's a bloodline that covers our scars. Holy Spirit, come capture our hearts to be gospel people. All the love that you've shown is the answer. All the love that you've shown is the way. So let it be known that the you
Thank you. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. All right. Well, good morning, High Point. Hey, listen, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And so regardless of how you are connecting with us today, whether you are here at the Carville campus or over at the East Memphis campus, or maybe you are tuning in somewhere in our church at home campus, we are so grateful for you. And we are glad, we are privileged, we are honored to worship with you today. Now today we are in the ninth week of our 12-week series through the book of Colossians. And in our passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to further explain to us and unpack for us the the topic and and the concept that he brought up in the last passage. Uh, Last week, we talked about the relationship between being heavenly-minded and being earthly-minded. We talked about the the differences between being a uh, heavenly-minded person here on earth and being an uh, earthly-minded person here on earth, right? We, We compared and we contrasted Uh, the two things. And so today what the Apostle Paul is going to do is he's going to further dive into that. And what he's going to do, he's going to explain to us that in order for us to live the life that we are called to live as believers, we have to constantly be putting on the new self and putting off the old self. So Paul essentially in this passage, he is going to use clothing language apparel language to explain to us the process of sanctification, that the way we become more and more like Jesus is by constantly putting off the old self, the old nature, the old flesh, the old man, and at the very same time, constantly be putting on the new man, the new nature, which is Christ. So our passage today is Colossians chapter 3. Verses 5 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. And what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage under two headings. We're going to look at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin today 
by looking at the first step that Paul calls us to take, which is to put off the old. And then we are going to conclude by, by looking at the second step, which is to put on the new. So we're going to begin by looking at putting off the old. We're going to conclude by looking at putting on the new. So let's begin today by looking at the first step, which is putting off the old. Look what Paul says in verses 5 through 11 of our passage. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked. In these, you, once, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what we see here in this passage is that the first step that Paul says we are to daily and consistently be taking if we are to live heavenly-minded lives is we are to constantly, Paul says, be putting off the old nature, the old self, the old man, which is Adam. Now, now in this passage, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, what he does is he essentially uses two phrases to say the exact same thing. He, he describes to us what our relationship to sin should be, and he uses two different phrases to say the exact same same thing. The first phrase that Paul uses when he describes our relationship to sin is he says we must put sin to death. Then the second phrase that Paul uses when he describes our relationship to sin is he says we must put off sin. Two different phrases that are essentially saying the same thing. Let, let me unpack both phrases to help us understand what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do here. The, the first thing he says is that we are to put sin to death. That, that literally, what it li literally means there is to metaphorically consider something dead. It is dead to you and you are dead to it. What it means is, is to deprive something of its power. We are to deprive sin of its power. It, it literally means in the Greek to starve something or to cut the supply line to something. And what's interesting is that the way that Paul writes it in this text, he, he writes it in the aorist the imperative. So it's an aorist tense, which means it's past tense. So Paul says it's a once and for all past action, and it's an imperative. He is commanding us to do it. Okay? So, so, so don't miss this. The apostle Paul says that when it comes to our sin, he commands us to put sin to death, past tense, once and for all action. That when we are dealing with a particular sin in our life, Paul says we are to kill it. And once it's killed, we move on. We are dead to it and it is dead to us. But that's not the only word he uses to describe our relationship with sin. The, the other phrase that Paul uses is clothing language. He says that not only must we put sin to death, we must also put sin off. 
It literally means, that word, that phrase means to undress. It means to strip off clothing. It means to disrobe, to, to put something behind you and to move on. Now, similar to the first word, the first phrase that we looked at, this also is in the aorist tense, past tense, once and for all action. This is also an imperative. But what's interesting about this phrase, put off sin, is that it's in the middle voice. What is the middle voice? Well, the middle voice in Greek implies an action that the person is doing on themselves. So Paul says that the only person that can put off your sin is you. It's in the middle voice. It's an action that you must do on your Self. So what Paul does with, the, with these two words is he explains to us uh, the relationship that we as believers should have with sin. So get this, church, and I don't want you to miss this. If, if you're here in the room or watching online, get this, okay? What Paul is saying is that when it comes to our sin, uh, we don't uh, suppress it. We don't manage it. Uh, we don't steward it. We don't coddle it. We kill it. We exterminate it. We totally and completely wipe it out. Why? Because if you are not killing and destroying sin, you better believe that sin is killing and destroying you. That is how sin works. Uh, the way one commentator put it is that sin is like a monarch that has been overthrown. It's like a king that's been overthrown in your life. But now that monarch, instead of going away quietly, it is now seeking because it no longer has rule or authority or the ability to condemn you, what, what it does is, is now seeking to debilitate you, to, to distract you, to attack you. That is what sin does. Church, sin is like a cancer that is spreading in your body. If you don't deal with that tumor, it will continue to spread into other areas of your life, right? So often we can be like, well, I'm, I'm good in this area, but I'm not that great in this area. The problem is with sin is that sin doesn't just impact you, it impacts the people around you. And it doesn't impact just the area where you are sinning, but it impacts other areas as well. Sin is like a cancer. It is like a tumor that spreads. And so if you don't kill it, you better believe that it will kill you. This is similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Jesus isn't saying that we literally take our eye out or cut our hand off. But what he's saying to us is that we need to be that drastic when it comes to our sin. When it comes to our sin, we need to take drastic measures. Because sin is that serious. He says in that same passage that it's better to lose an eye or lose a hand metaphorically than to end up in hell, literally. That's what he is calling us here to do. See, but if we're being honest, I think part of the reason, and I include myself in this, I think part of the reason why many of us are still dealing with the same sin pattern, the same sinful habit, the same sinful cycle uh, is because if we're being honest, we really don't want to give sin the death blow that this passage is calling us to give it. A lot of us are like the, the gentleman in the book, The Great Divorce. Uh, C.S. Lewis in, in The Great Divorce, for those of you who haven't read that book, it's a, 
it's a parable. It's a, it's a metaphor. And he, he, he's up in heaven and he's walking through heaven with his mentor, uh, George MacDonald, who had already passed by that time. And, and, and they're, they're, they're taking a tour of heaven. And they come across this guy who is interacting with an angel. And the guy is struggling with lust, with the, the sin of lust. And it's become such a part of his life that it literally a creature has grown on his shoulder. And he can't get rid of it. And, and this guy is walking around heaven complaining about how much he hates this sin of lust and how much it's ruined his life. So, so right as C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald walk up, uh, uh, an angel approaches this gentleman and says, if you really hate that sin as much as you hate it, let me help you slay it. Let me help you kill it. Let me help you get rid of it. And almost immediately the guy goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Who said anything about killing it? I don't like it. I don't prefer it. But kill it? Let's, let's calm down a little bit. And for several paragraphs, him and this angel, they interact and, and, and discuss the costs and the benefits. Because there's a cost to killing sin. The cost and the benefits to getting rid of this creature. Finally, he agrees to it. And what's beautiful about the story is that he's, he's taken to a whole other level of life. But the thing about Christianity is that in order for us to take, be taken to another level of life, uh, we have to experience another level of death. I got to kill something, my sin, in order to have a greater ability to live in something else, my salvation. Th that's how it works. You know, one of the things that comes to my mind as I think about our relationship with sin, a lot of us are like the Israelites. You know, in, in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, God shows up and after 400 years of slavery and bondage, God shows up and through the Exodus, he, he delivers the people of Israel. And then the Israelites are in the wilderness and almost immediately, they start missing and desiring the things of Egypt. And they start saying things like, well, it, it's just it was so much better over there. They're talking about slavery now, church. They're talking about bondage. Slave labor, and, and they're saying that is better than this. So, so get this. The reason why the Israelites are not able to walk in freedom is because they rather stay in the familiar. There are people right now that this is what you need to hear from me today. What's most holding you back from walking in freedom is not your fears or your failures. It's the familiar. Instead of walking in freedom, I'd rather stay in the familiar. Because there's just something about the familiar, right? I don't want to get rid of that sin because that sin got me through a really difficult time in my life. For some of us, it's not our fear, it's not our failures, it's the familiar. We aren't walking in the freedom of salvation because we prefer the familiarity of sin. One of the stories that really I feel illustrates this in John, is John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, you have the story of Lazarus. And Lazarus is, has been dead for several days now. Jesus shows up on the scene. He interacts with the two sisters. And then right around verse 44, he, he resurrects Lazarus. And the first thing Jesus says when Lazarus comes out of the grave is he says, take off his grave clothes. Take off his funeral clothes. Why? Because he ain't dead anymore. You see, when Jesus showed up, they were commemorating a death. 
But now, because of the miracle that he just performed, they are no longer commemorating a death. They are celebrating new life. So Jesus says, change his outfit because it doesn't fit the occasion anymore. Church, when you place your faith in Jesus, you go from being dead in sin to being dead to sin. You have to change the outfit. You have to. Because you're no longer commemorating a death. You are now celebrating new life. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Our old self no longer matches our new nature. It just doesn't. We have to take off the old nature, the old man, the old self. We have to put it away and put it to death. See, when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, he, he goes into your metaphorical spiritual closet. And what he starts doing is he starts getting rid of all the old garments of sin. He starts throwing them out, one by one. Then he starts replacing those garments with the robes of righteousness, with, with the new man. See, the Holy Spirit, in a lot of ways, is like Lily Franco, my wife. See, here's what you might not know about my wife and I. If you were to go into our closet, I have about double the amount that my, of clothes my wife has. She has more shoes than, I, than me, but I have more clothes than her, right? And the reason why, it's, well, it's two reasons. I have a shopping problem, and, 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 and that's how I cope. Uh, <laughs> your boy likes to look good, what can I say? But that's, that's part of the problem. Uh, the other problem, though, is that I don't like getting rid of clothes because I never know when I'll need it. I can't get rid of that shirt. I haven't worn that since 2014, but you never know. I might need those jeans. I might need that sweater, right? I might need that camo hoodie that I've never worn. If you know anything about me, I should not have any camo in my wardrobe. I avoid the outdoors as much as I can. But I always keep it just in case I might need it. My wife, on the other hand, she's what we like to call a purger. She purges everything. If she doesn't wear something for more than three minutes, she gets rid of it. She, she does the same thing with her emails. She does the same thing with her text messages. The moment that conversation is over, she deletes the text thread. The email, it, me, I have all the text threads since like 98 on my phone. Because I never know when I'll need it. And I'm cool with her doing that. My problem is when she comes to my side of the closet and starts making decisions for me that I didn't agree to. And I go looking for the shirt that I needed and it's no longer there. But, but here's the thing, church. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit works. When the Holy Spirit steps into your life, he starts to clean out your closet. Those old raggedy garments of the old self, of the old nature, are thrown out. And guess what? You have no say in that. You can fight them and try to hold the other side of the hanger and be like, no, don't take it. But the Holy Spirit is in the business of purging the old and bringing in the new. Listen, in order to fully put on the robes of the last Adam, we have to put off the fig leaves of the first one. Now, the question is this, how do we actually put sins to death? Like, like, what does it actually look like for us to put off 
the old man, the, the old nature? What does it look like on a daily basis? I don't feel that as a pastor I would be pastoring you if I didn't actually tell you what that process looks like. How do we actually do it? Well, to truly deal with the sin in our lives, we can't just deal with the fruit of it. We must go to the root of it. Remember what I said, uh, the, the phrase there, put to death means. It, to put to death, it literally means to cut the supply line to something. To starve it. I would argue that in order for us to consistently kill sin in our life, in order for us to consistently put off sin in our life, we have to cut the supply line both internally and externally. The first way that we intentionally and effectively kill sin and put off sin is by cutting the supply line internally. If you remember, well, for those of you who heard my message last week, uh, in that message, one of the things that I said is that our external actions, our external emotions are a result of our internal affections. Because in the passage last week, Paul, says that we, Paul said that we are to seek the things that are above. But the word there, seek, has to do with your heart. It has to do with your affections. It has to do with your longings, your cravings, your desires. And when what I taught last week in light of what Paul taught is that the, the, the reason why we struggle with external, sinful external emotions and actions is because we actually have sinful affections. That's the actual issue with our sin. And so if all you deal with is with the actions, but never address the affections, you're dealing with the fruit of it, but not the root of it. And one of the things that the Apostle Paul goes out of his way to show us, even in this passage, not just from the passage in last week, but even in this passage, is that every time there is an, an immoral action, the reason why you are committing an immoral action is because before you did that, you had an idolatrous affection. Say that again. The reason why you are committing an immoral action with your hands, according to Paul, is because you have committed, you have an idolatrous affection in your heart. Your internal affections impact your external actions and emotions. And I would argue that in the text, that's exactly what Paul teaches. Because Paul says, if you look at the, 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 the list of sins, he gives us two lists of sins. There's the first list, which is verse 5, and then the second list is verse 8. Now, this is a side note, but here's what's interesting about those two lists. Uh, the first list is sexual sin, sexual morality, impurity, right? The big bad sins in Christianity. The external ones, the visible ones that everybody sees. But then the second list are the more internal ones, anger and malice. And I would add to that list things like uh, bitterness and unforgiveness. In Christian circles, we are so quick to condemn the first list. And so quick to minimize the second list. So if someone at the church commits a sexual sin, you're, you're ostracized. You are, you're gone. You're the worst of the worst. But the second list? Oh, brother, uh, brother so-and-so just has a temper problem. Gossiping, it's okay. Pride, who doesn't have pride? So I would say that in, in, in more secular circles, they tend 
to ignore the first list and worship the second list, right? For, for the sake of pseudo-unity and surface harmony, they will overlook things like sexual morality in our culture. But in the church, don't do anything in the first list, but the second list, you can't do the external big sins, but the subtle small ones, eh. It's what author Jerry Bridges talks about in his book, Respectable Sins. In, in that book, it's called Respectable Sins. He, he talks about the 20 sins that we as Christians have deemed respectable, acceptable. We don't like the big blatant sins, not in the church, but the subtle small ones. We magnify one list and minimize the other list. But in this passage, church, the Apostle Paul uses some language here uh, that reveals to us that he's not just talking about our actions, he is also talking about our affections. How do I know that? Well, if you look at verse 5, two of the sins that he mentions is desires and idolatry. Desires and idolatry. Now, for those of you who were here during our idolatry series, these are two words that I addressed often in that series. Let me, let me unpack both, and I will show you how both of these words actually reflect an internal affection. Uh, the first word that I want to highlight for you is the word desires. In the Greek, in the Greek language, the word for desires is thumia. Thumia. That's what it means, desires. But Paul, in, this, in the New Testament, comes up with a brand new word that didn't exist before. In front of the word thumia, he puts the word epi, the prefix epi, which means over. So essentially, Paul says that our problem is not our desires. We have good desires. The problem is when we put epi in front of thumia and our desires become over desires. Our desires become inordinate desires. They become excessive desires. A lot of times, church, and I don't want you to miss this, a lot of times our problem it's not that we want bad things, but that we want good things too much. We take good things, good gifts that God has given us, and here's what we do. We take the good things, and we take an O out, and they go from being good to being God, and we promote them to the place of God. And all of a sudden, that good thing, your family, your career, your reputation, your education, your romance, those things are good things, but they are not God things. The gifts were never supposed to replace the gift giver. And so all of a sudden, that good gift becomes a terrible God. That's what that word there means. But here's what I want you to know. Th that word there, desires, in verse 5, connects to the word idolatry in verse 5. Because an over-desire is when you idolize something. An over-desire is when you put something in the place that only God deserves. In the place where only God belongs. And so what you see with that word, the, the word desires and the word idolatry, is that Paul is not just talking about our external actions and emotions. He's talking about our internal affections. He's talking about our desires, our longings, and our cravings. That before we sin... Before I commit immorality with my hands, I must first commit idolatry with my heart. And this is what we talked about in that series, for that the reformers are written the way through ten. The first two commandments have to do with idolatry. They have to do with our desires. God says, you shall have no other God before me. 
But before you break commandments 3 through 10, you must first break commandments 1 and 2. What do I mean? If I lie to someone, right, let's say I'm, I'm sitting with you and I lie to you. I exaggerate a story. Approval more than I need God's approval. So before I broke that commandment, the do not lie commandment, I first broke the idolatry commandment. Because I put you in the place of God and I needed your approval more than I needed his. You get what I'm saying? But here's the thing, it's, it's not just Paul that says this, and it's not just Moses that says this. Uh, James also says the same thing. James, in his letter, he probably says it the most concise than all of them. He says in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Epithumia. By his own desires when it has That's what... That before you can, you can commit immorality with God, I am willing to sin against you. Because in this moment, you actually are not my God. Here's, here's the way I would describe it. Pretend that someone, uh, let's, say, let's say that tomorrow you find out that you've inherited a multiple acres of land. Somewhere in Tennessee. Right? I mean, you, you, you get that given. And not only this thing, that in the you see a river and you try to collect all the garbage and all the debris that you can. But no matter how much you clean, there's more debris, more garbage, more trash. Listen, at some point, the best thing you can do is stop dealing with what's downstream and move upstream to figure out where the garbage and the trash is coming from. That's exactly what this means here in this text. That so many of us are dealing, are only superficially dealing with our actions. And the reason why we keep committing the same sinful actions is because we haven't dealt with the sinful affections that lead to those actions. We haven't gone upstream. We keep dealing with what's downstream and never go upstream. Paul says that in order to truly kill the sin in our lives... We can't just deal with what's downstream, our actions. We must deal with what's upstream, our affections. Our immorality flows from our idolatry. So until you place God back where he belongs in that particular area of your life, don't be surprised when you can't honor him and serve him as God. In verse 3 of chapter 3, we looked at this last week, Paul says that Christ is our life. That all that we have and all that we need is hidden in Christ. And that Jesus Christ is our very life. Here's the problem with that. That can be true objectively, but not be true subjectively. Jesus Christ, get this church, he can be your theological savior, but not your functional one. Theologically, oh yeah, Jesus is he's my life, hey. Functionally, my kids are my life. My career is my life. My spouse is my life. The idea of a spouse that I haven't met yet is my life. My retirement is my life. Functionally, the way we're living is not what Paul is calling us to do. It is not until we take those good things that we over-desire and demote them back to just being 
those, those, those things that are God things, we got to demote them back and put an O back. And they go from being God to just being good again. And then we find in Jesus what we should have been finding in him from the beginning. You see, here's the thing. A, a lot of us, when, when, we, uh, when it comes to our relationship with sin, we treat it like a game of tag. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, uh, when it comes to sin, every day we, we get up in the morning and sin is it and we don't want to get tagged by sin. And so we spend the whole day just a- avoiding sin. Running, oh, oh, there's sin over there. Let me not go over there. Oh, oh, I, I. And we spend the whole day just dodging sin in every way that we can. According to this passage, that is not how you kill sin in your life. We don't kill sin by running away from it, even though that's implied. We don't kill it by running away from something. We kill it by running to something. I avoid and also kill the sin in my life, not just by running away from sin, but running towards my Savior. And the more I behold the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the more I see the beauty of my Savior, the more I will expose the ugliness of my sin. Man, I'm preaching right now. I, I'm up here with Jesus. I don't care where you're at right now. I know that me and Jesus, this is, this is impacting me. I needed to hear that this week. But listen, we, we, we don't just kill sin internally at the affection level, but we also kill sin externally. Because again, we said that the way we put something to death, according to that phrase, is by cutting the supply line. By starving it. So in order to kill sin, not only do you kill it internally, but you also kill it externally. Here's what I mean. You may not know this, but many of the sins that we commit in our lives, they are preceded by steps that lead up to it. There are certain patterns, there are certain cycles that we find ourselves in. And once that pattern starts, we almost almost always end up in the same place. In other words, most of us, when we think of sin, we only think of that moment of temptation where we fall. But many times, there are patterns and cycles that lead up to that moment. And in order to truly kill sin in our lives, we have to cut the supply line. We have to stop the cycle. We have to stop the pattern even before it starts. So, so let me give you some examples. Let, let's say, for example, you are someone who struggles with sexual sin. You, you struggle with uh, immorality. You struggle with pornography. The word there, immorality, is like a junk drawer for all sexual sin. Let's say you struggle with immorality, with pornography. In order to truly cut the supply line, in order to truly kill the sin in your life, you can't just act like, oh, I got here again. I guess I got to do it. Got me again. No, many times there's a pattern. Many times there's a time of day when we are tempted. There are certain devices that we use. So in order to cut the supply line, in order to kill sin, in order to put off sin, maybe what you do is you buy software that keeps you from certain websites. There are certain channels you don't watch. You don't stay up by yourself. You go to bed when everybody else goes to bed. There are certain technology, whether it's your phone or your laptop, that you don't bring into your room. You leave it out there. You can't take the exact same steps every day and then be surprised when you end up in the exact same place. Cut the supply line, church. So let's say, for example, you are someone who struggles, maybe not with sexual, not, maybe you don't have sexual, sexual struggles, you have emotional struggles. You, you struggle with feelings of worthlessness. 
and insecurity and inadequacy. You have to identify what are the things that lead me to that place. Maybe there are certain people you should stop following on social media. Maybe, this is crazy, you get rid of social media. Certain friends you just can't hang out with anymore. See, instead of waiting until you get to that last step of temptation, you, you cut the supply line, church. If there's a habit you're trying to break, don't buy that thing. Don't go to that place. Don't hang out with those people. Don't visit that website. What I'm saying to you is, is that in order to truly kill sin in your life, you don't just do it internally at the affection level, but you could do it externally by cutting the cycle, by killing the cycle, by stopping the pattern even before it starts. In order to change what's downstream, we have to address what's upstream. Listen, if you don't like what's coming down the conveyor belt, stop the supply line. Don't blame the conveyor belt for patterns and cycles that you've created. And again, church, I, hear me say, I have a log in my eye. I, I have a two by four in my eye. I don't think I'm better than anybody. But I, as your pastor, I would not be pastoring you if I didn't tell you what this actually looks like. Paul says that we are to kill, put to death, and put off the sins in our lives. So the first thing that we are called to do in this passage is we are called to put off the old. The second thing that we are called to do in this passage, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, is we are called to put on the new. Look what Paul says in verses 12 through 17. Put on then is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, so according to the Apostle Paul, the second step that we are to daily and consistently take as believers is we are not just to put off the old, but we are to consistently and daily put on the new. And what I love about this section, verse 12 through 17, is that the Apostle Paul, he explains to us uh, three benefits that we as believers have if we are in Christ. There are three things that we have access to if we are in Christ. The, if you're taking notes, the first thing is the grace of Christ. The second thing is the peace of Christ. And then the third thing is the word of Christ. The grace, the peace, and the word. 
Let's begin with the first thing. The, the first benefit that Paul says we have access to if we have placed our faith in Jesus, if we are in Christ, is that we now have access to the grace of Christ. Now, where do I get that from? Well, look at verse 12 through 14. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which, above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect, it binds everything together, sorry, in perfect harmony. So, so the first thing that we have access to, church, is the grace of Christ. Paul here uses three words to describe us. Uh, the first word he uses is the word chosen. Then he uses the word holy. And then thirdly, he uses the word beloved. Let's, let's work through each one of these words because each one of them is incredible in their own right. The first word that Paul uses to describe us is the word chosen. The word there chosen in Greek is the word elect. It literally means to be selected by God, to be handpicked from a crowd. And what I love about it is that it also means to be someone's favorite. So, so get this. Think about how beautiful this is, church. Since Jesus is God's favorite, when we are placed in Jesus, we now become God's favorite. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but, but that will change your day. But that's not the only word. The other word that's used is holy. Which is ridiculous when you think about it, that God would call us holy. But the word there, holy, it means to be set apart for the purposes of God. It means to be consecrated. It means to be dedicated to God and him alone. And then the third word that he uses is the word beloved. Now the word there, beloved, is the Greek word agape. It describes the one-way, unconditional love of God. It is love based on perceived value, not actual value. And praise God for that because we don't have too much value in and of ourselves. But it's love based on perceived value. It is value that God attributes to you and to me. It, it literally means to be well pleased with someone, to be content with someone. That in Christ, when Jesus comes out from his, the baptismal waters, God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. When you are in Christ, God is now well pleased with you. You, but not because of anything that we've done, but because of everything that Christ has done. So, so the first thing that, that stands out to me this week as I was meditating on this passage and wrestling with it, the first thing that really encouraged me is that these three words that Paul uses to describe us, he first used, the New Testament first used to describe someone else. These three words, chosen, holy, beloved are actually used in the New Testament to describe someone else. And that person is not Abraham. That person is not Adam. That person is not Daniel. That person is not Jacob. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, so the question is this. Here's what I was wrestling with this week. If, if, this, if these words ultimately describe him, then how do they all of a sudden ultimately describe us? How does that work? Like, like what happened in order for that to be true, right? Because here's the thing. I would actually argue that the problem gets worse before it gets better. Why? Because earlier in the passage, in verse 6, 
Paul uh, describes the sins to us, and then he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on all of us. So it gets worse before it gets better, church. The question is, how do we go from the unavoidable wrath of God in verses 5 through 11 to the unconditional love of God in verses 12 through 17? The answer, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how. At the cross, Jesus took the consequences of verses 5 through 11 so that we might get the benefits of verses 12 through 17. At the cross, Jesus tasted the penalty of death so that we might taste the blessings of life. At the cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God so that now we might receive the full love of God, church. But I don't want you to miss the order, though. If you're not careful, you can miss the order. Here's what I mean. You, you would think that what Paul says there is that as you put on compassion and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness, as you put those things on, then you become chosen. Then you become beloved. Then you become holy. But don't miss the order. Paul says, do those things because they're already true of you. The identity precedes the activity. In religion, it's the other way around. The activity leads to identity. But in the gospel, the identity leads to activity. So what we see is that these three words, they're not achieved. They are received. They are not earned. They are given. They are not attained. They are gifted. But what I also find beautiful about the grace of Jesus Christ in this passage is that in verse 9 of the passage, Paul uses the word, to, the, the Greek word, to, the, the verb to put off, to, to strip off. That's the word that he uses there. But what I love about Scripture is that when, when you look at the Bible and you allow the Bible to commentate on the Bible, you see the beauty of the gospel throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Here's why. Because that verb, to put off or to strip off, is used several times in the New Testament. And with every time it's used, it gives us a deeper understanding and appreciation of the gospel. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 27, we see this word, this verb, to put off, to be stripped off. But in that context, it's used to describe what the soldiers do to Jesus. In that passage, it says that they stripped him of his robe. They, they disrobed him. They unclothed him. They undressed him. But what's beautiful about this church is that in that moment, it seemed like an, a, a very obvious defeat for the Son of God. It looked like in the battle between Jesus and Satan, Jesus was losing. But, but think about this. What seemed like an obvious defeat all of a sudden becomes an overwhelming victory. Why? Because that same Greek word is used again in Colossians 2 verse 15. In Colossians 2 verse 15, the Bible tells me, I don't know what it tells you, but the Bible tells me that same verb is used again when it says that at the cross, Jesus Christ, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. That word there, disarmed, it means to strip away. It means to literally take something off of you. Same Greek word again, church. So the same word that's used to describe Jesus' apparent defeat in Matthew 27 is used to describe his overwhelming victory in Colossians 2. Come on. And so when he uses it again in chapter 3, it has to change the way we view that word. It has to. 
Because the reason why I can now strip away the presence of sin in my life is because at the cross, Jesus stripped away the power and the penalty of it. This is beautiful. That when we place our faith in Jesus, we go from being in Adam and getting what he deserved, verses 5 through 11, to being in Christ and getting what he deserved, verses 12 through 17. Listen, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes the, 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 the best way to appreciate something is by putting it on a certain backdrop. Listen, the only way that you and I are ever going to appreciate what we received, verses 12 through 17 is by putting it on the backdrop of what we deserved, verses 5 through 11. You see, when you go to a jeweler, I don't know if you know this, but when you go to a jeweler, there's a reason why they use a black mat to put the jewelry on. Because the darkness, the blackness of the mat allows you to see the beauty of the jewelry better. If, if verses 5 through 11 is the black mat, verses 12 through 17 is the jewelry. And the only way we're ever going to appreciate what we've received is if we understand what we deserved. When, when, you, when you do that on a daily basis, it doesn't manipulate your hands, it melts and motivates your heart. So the first thing that we see is the, is the grace of Christ. The, the second thing that we see here, though, is the peace of Christ. Look what it says in verse 15. In verse 15 it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So, according to Paul, the second benefit that we get, the second benefit that we have access to as believers is the peace of Christ. The word there, peace, means to have freedom from worry. It means to be undisturbed in your soul. The word picture is of, a, of, of water that is undisturbed, that hasn't been touched. That's what the word there, peace, means. But the, the more important word, in my opinion, is the word control or the word rule. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. The word there, rule, get this. I didn't know this. It's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. It means to, to give something control, to give something the final verdict. It was actually a word that was used to describe an umpire or a referee in the Olympic Greek games. In the Greek Olympic Games, there were certain individuals who, who served as umpires, as judges, as referees. And, and they were the ones who officiated the rules. They were the ones who determined who won, who lost, and who was disqualified. It's the only time in the New Testament this word is used. Paul says that we are to allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. So, so think about this. There are two implications that I need you to understand. There's a vertical implication and there's a horizontal implication. Let me begin with the vertical. The vertical implication is this, church. The only way that you and I will ever experience the peace of God horizontally is if we have peace with God vertically. So maybe the reason why you're sitting here today and you're not experiencing the peace of God horizontally is because you don't have peace with God horizontally, or vertically. I don't feel the peace of God subjectively because I don't have peace with God objectively. So maybe today the step you take is to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Make peace with God objectively and now you can experience the peace of God subjectively. 
But, but, but let me talk to the Christians here for a second. If you're sitting here today and you don't feel the peace of God, it might be because you haven't remembered the peace with God. But the more I meditate and remind myself of the peace with God that Jesus won for me at the cross, the more then I experience the peace of God here on earth. So that's the vertical implication. But the horizontal implication is the one that really encouraged me. Because think about what Paul says. Paul says that we must allow the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts. I said that word rule refers to the umpire, to the referee in the Olympic Games. That the peace of Jesus Christ, according to Paul, should be allowed to be the final judge and arbitrator in our lives. So in other words, the final say and final verdict over our hearts our families, our lives, and our churches should be the peace of Jesus Christ. Listen, there's someone who needs to hear this today. Like literally as I was writing this out, I thought, there's someone who needs to hear this today. I don't know who it is. I don't know if you're in this room. I don't know if you're online. But here's what I need you to know. The final verdict on your worth, your value, your significance, and your importance is not based on what the world says or what your family says, or what your boss says, or what social media says. Heck, it's not even based on what you say. It's based on what Jesus Christ has already said. In the gospel, you are accepted and you are justified and you are validated in front of the only eyes that matter. The eyes of God. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. I, in one of my devotionals this week, I came across a story where the, 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 the pastor who wrote it, he said that, and this happens to me often, he says that he, find, he finds himself losing his keys often. Right? It's, it's, it's morning time and he's trying to get out of the house and he loses his keys. And he's running around the house looking for the keys. He can't find them anywhere. And the longer he looks, the more victimized he feels. And he feels like the dog took him or the kids took him or his spouse has something against him, right? And the angrier he gets and the louder he gets. He says, but sometimes as he's looking, he, he, he accidentally taps his pocket and he realizes that the keys were in his pocket the whole time. And that all that turbulence and all that disturbance that he was feeling was for nothing because the keys were in his pocket the whole time. Church. The keys are in your pocket. Every morning we wake up and we forget the peace of Christ. Because we forget peace with God, we forget the peace of God, we lose sight of it. And our souls are disturbed. There's turbulence at the heart level. And we wake up and we're frantically looking for peace in our relationships, in our jobs, in our performance. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reminds you. That the keys were in your pocket the whole time. The gospel is the skeleton key to your whole life. And the last thing we see is the word of Christ. We see the grace. We see the peace. The last thing we see is the word. Where, where do I get the word from? Well, in verse 16, it says, And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the third benefit that we have is the word of Christ. Now, that's a very rare phrase in the New Testament. 
oftentimes we see the word of God, but rarely do we see the word of Christ. And what commentators say is that the word of Christ refers to the Bible in general and the gospel in particular. It refers to the word of God in general and the work of God in particular. That's what the word of Christ is. But then Paul says that we should allow the word of Christ, the gospel, to dwell, which literally means to take permanent residence, to make a home in our hearts. And he says that it's to dwell richly. The word there, richly, means not just a little or partially, but abundantly and to a great degree. That we must allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to make a home in our hearts, to permeate every area of our lives. And what Paul says is that the more we marinate on this, the more we allow our hearts to marinate and saturate and soak in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more then we will share and sing the gospel to ourselves and to others. Paul says that our public worship is a direct result of our private worship. That if I'm not worshiping Jesus privately and individually, I'm probably not going to worship Jesus publicly and corporately. That I must be singing the gospel to my soul. That I must be sharing the gospel to myself. myself. Every single person here is a preacher, not just me. Every single person here is a worship leader. The question is, what are you preaching to yourself? And what are you singing to yourself? Because if I don't share and sing the gospel to myself, there's a good chance I won't share and sing the gospel to my spouse and to my kids and to my friends, and to my co-workers. Because you cannot give what you do not have. Once I understand that in Jesus, I am chosen. In Jesus, I am accepted. In Jesus, I am beloved. In Jesus, I am holy. Now, I can put on compassion. I can put on gentleness. I can put on forgiveness but only because I understand. I can put on compassion because Jesus showed me compassion. I can put on kindness because Jesus showed me kindness. I can put on forgiveness because Jesus showed me forgiveness. And the more I am filled with that gospel reality, the more than I will overflow that gospel reality into the lives of others. So what we discover in this passage, church, is that in the gospel... We are not just given the power to put off the old self, the old nature, the old man. But we are also, by the grace of God, given the power to put on the new nature, the new self, and the new man. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel that... In order for us to truly appreciate the good news of verses 12 through 17, we have to admit the bad news of verses 5 through 11. We are grateful that because of what Jesus did, words like chosen and holy and beloved are true of us, but only because they are true of him. Help us, I pray. For the person here who hasn't placed their faith in you, I pray that today would be the day that they place their faith in you. And for the person here who has already placed their faith in you, I pray that we would remind ourselves of the grace of Christ, the peace of Christ, and the word of Christ. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name.
Why don't you just rest in that for just a second? song we're going to respond with uh, today. I had so many songs coming through my head. Um, but I think what we have planned is, is, is good to sing. But I want to say this. The song Build My Life is per, it, it has a progression to it. Also, I'm coughing a little bit, but I had a negative COVID test the other day. Praise God. Uh, so <laughs> some allergies are hitting me. Um, but the progression of this song is that we say, worthy of every song we could ever sing, worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. These are confessions of who Jesus is. And then to the, to the degree, Pastor Will, to the degree at which we believe that, we will then be able to see and recognize the chorus is true. Holy, there's no one like you. There's none beside you. Open my eyes, God, and wonder, Show me who you are and fill me with your heart. Lead me in love to those around me. And then to the degree at which we live in light of the, the gospel, of the, the chorus, okay, then we will then be able to live in the freedom to be able to live the bridge of this song that says that I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. So don't miss that church, okay? Can we sing this together? Come on, let's stand and sing. Come on.
we thank you this morning for the hope we have in Jesus. God, we thank you that the perfect one gave his life for me so that I could now be viewed as a son, that I could wear his righteous robes. Who is this king? Father God, we, we praise you and we thank you for what you've done in this place, God. Let the, the truth, let your truth, the word of Christ dwell in us now richly, God. Let it resonate throughout our day and not just Sunday, God. I pray that we would be a people that starting right now would begin to anticipate meeting with you in the morning, God, and remembering the gospel. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you do that? Would you be faithful and change our hearts, change our desires, God? We look forward to meeting together once again, to be able to do this again as long as we possibly can in freedom. And we are grateful for that. We know that, that uh, God, you cannot be shaken. Your plans are never thwarted. And that's where we put our rest and our peace in you alone. We love you, Jesus. And a faith-filled, grateful church said this morning, amen, amen. Church, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for gathering with us. Remember, uh, our mission statement here at High Point Church is that we long to glorify God as gospel-centered disciples who gather, grow, give, and go. Thank you for gathering. Okay, you check that one off. Okay, you're done. Just kidding. We'll see you again next week. But maybe you're not sure what your next step needs to look like and how to grow. We want to invite you to go to highpointonline.com. Check out lots of different next steps. Maybe you need to get in a group. Maybe you need to get a Bible for the first time. Maybe you need to begin spending time in God's Word together. Uh, maybe you need to go public and tell, tell the world your story and share your testimony. We want to invite you to do all those things at highpointonline.com. You can also check out Next Steps in the lobby where someone personally can walk you through some of that stuff. If you have any questions, you can feel free to email Pastor Will. You can email me, our team. We're, uh, we're here for, to help you, to help you grow in your faith in Christ. And uh, so we're grateful that you've joined us this morning. In case you're the type of person that likes to give blood, we want to let you know we do have a blood drive tomorrow, okay? And uh, I think we're about six, six spots away from meeting our goal. So uh, no pressure, but if, if you feel healthy, if you're in a good place to do that, we, we wanna uh, invite you to do that. There are many people that need that. That's just one way we can love our city and those around us. So uh, we love you. May the word of, of Christ, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And uh, I pray that he gives you, grants you peace in Christ Jesus this week. We love you and we'll see you next Sunday.